Hear then the word of the Lord from the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 29, verses 1 through 14. Now these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the court officials, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisha, the son of Shaphan, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. And seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will have welfare. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams which they dream. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, When seventy years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you shall call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me, when you search for me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. From the New Testament, Romans 13, 1 through 7. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do what you, you want to have no fear. Do, do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God for you, to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but for conscience' sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Thus far the written word. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you and we pray that you will make us to know and understand your will, that your spirit shall guide us and we will understand fully your revelation through types and shadows from the Old Testament into the time of fulfillment and this present age in Christ. We ask, O oh Lord, that we will know truth so that we may know you and that we will be set free to worship you. 
and glorify the name of the King. Amen. Please be seated. As we continue on through the book of Romans, we have now arrived at the point that we are looking at the proper response of gratitude that the believer owes to God. We have already seen, just like in the Heidelberg Catechism, this pattern laid out where first we are made to understand that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, there is no one who is able to approach God in his own righteousness, but rather the necessary acknowledgement that we are all sinners and in need of grace is incumbent upon all believers. Then, for a large portion of the book of Romans, the apostle writes out and explains to us the gospel. And not simply that Jesus saves, although of course that is a good summary, but rather how he saves, the economy that God uses, that Jesus is in fact the second Adam, that it is his obedience to the law that we receive as our righteousness, the righteousness of God, and therefore only in Christ do we find redemption. And then we are told of the burdens that we suffer in this present evil age, where we fight against ourselves and the world, where we struggle because we desire to do the good because we are made alive in Christ, and yet we so often go on in sin. And the Apostle explains that this is the ordinary condition of, of all believers. And in the Heidelberg Catechism we are told, even the best of men will only make the barest of beginnings in sanctification in this life. But the reality is, we must struggle against our fleshly desires. We must struggle against sin. And in the last day, in Christ, we will triumph. Then we are now in the third section, beginning in chapter 12. What does it mean to live as a believer? How do we struggle against sin? What is the law of God, and how do we show true gratitude to God. As we have already said, we must make a clear distinction between ourselves and those who seek these works as a means of appealing to God, as a means of meriting his favor. All the good works of the law that are commanded to us will merit nothing as regards our justification. They will not in any way make us better or more beautiful in the sight of God. They are the proper response, however, of those whom God chose and loved and delivered in Jesus Christ. It is the proper response of those who have been raised up in him to live lives filled with joy and gratitude. And this is how we express that joy and gratitude. We saw that we have been commanded that we are to be conformed to the mind of Christ and to his image, that we are in fact being restored to this image through the Holy Spirit. And then we were told what that means, that we are to love others, that we are in fact to desire their good. And in the last time that we looked at Romans, you can see some of the verses there on page 9, Romans 12:10, give preference to one another in honor. Verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Never take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And then continuing on in chapter 13, verse 8, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And then a summary of the law is given in verse 9, And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, 
you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. It is therefore in light of and in this context that we must now look at Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. How is the believer living in this world to relate to the civil magistrate? Now, on the face of it, a lot of people will say it's quite simple. Submit to whatever the magistrate tells you and all will be well. After all, Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And then the Apostle Peter also says, submit to the authorities because they have been placed there by God. It seems straightforward, but there is a huge burden that we must struggle with. The kingdoms of this present age are not the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. The kingdoms of this present age are frequently antagonistic to the church. And so then, what is the right relationship of those who are given the command to submit humbly when we also have a true king who reigns over us that our current kings or magistrates would ordinarily oppose? Keep in mind, this struggle was present already in the New Testament. The Apostle Peter and the Apostle John are arrested by the magistrate, by the Jewish courts, and told, do not preach Christ any longer. And their response we must honor God rather than men. The Apostle Paul has an arrest warrant put out on him when he is in Damascus. And we are told in 2 Corinthians that in fact it wasn't just the Jews. The Jews may have instigated it. But it was the local magistrate who sent soldiers to arrest him. And his response was to escape by being lowered out the city gates and to flee to the desert. So then we see that obviously this obedience cannot be an absolute obedience in all things because our primary allegiance is to the Lord God. And the command to not pay back evil and to love others and to own nothing other than love are not superseded by the command, honor the magistrate. So then how are we to understand these things? Well, look at Jeremiah 29. The Jews are the people of God of the Old Covenant. They had a nation and a king. And now God has sent another king from a foreign pagan land to come and take over Jerusalem, to destroy the temple, and to take all the intellectuals and the artists, the craftsmen, the smiths, off into exile. So that the ones who have remained behind in Judah are actually the poorest and least able. And what are the people told who are now under a foreign king who worships a pagan god and who spends the tax money to build up idolatrous temples? They are told, relax. This is not the end of the age. I still reign in heaven above. Your blessings are reserved in heaven. You now live in a world which is not your home. You are pilgrims, you are sojourners, you are exiles. Seek the welfare and the good of the kingdom in which you find yourself, because therein will be your welfare. If your kingdom prospers, you will prosper. If there is to be famine, you will suffer hunger. And therefore, pray that I will be merciful and compassionate to this kingdom, which I have chosen to use as the hammer or the sword of my judgment against you. It seems counterintuitive, 
We know that Israel at this time has not been superseded by the church. Therefore, there still should be an earthly, physical, Israelite kingdom at the time that Jeremiah is writing. And yet, God speaks through the prophet and says, be content to live in Babylon. Be content to live under this foreign pagan king. And do not let it bother you that I have placed over you idolaters. So how are the Jews to rightly honor Nebuchadnezzar as king? And how are they to rightly pray for the welfare of this kingdom? Would it be then to bow to the foreign gods, to worship Marduk in his temple, to participate in the New Year celebration, which was the conquering of Marduk over the forces of primal evil? Well, that would be impossible because they would then be participating in idolatry. And yet, as good citizens, they're supposed to support the king and his religion. Well, for that, we have a wonderful example in Daniel that we looked at last week, chapter 6. Daniel was commanded to pray to no one except the king of Persia, after Babylon has been overthrown, for 30 days. And Daniel disobeys this law. He doesn't try to hide his disobedience. He doesn't try to finesse the wording in any way. He flat out doesn't comply. And when he is arrested, and when he is condemned, and thrown into the lion's den, what is his response? O king, I did not sin against you. He makes it very clear. His obedience to God was a proper submission to the earthly authorities even though he disobeyed the earthly authority. Now, that might seem counterintuitive as well. You say, how can that be that disobedience of the earthly authority is actually true obedience and an honoring because of this? We have a duty and responsibility in our role and station, whatever that may be. And this duty and responsibility is not simply to blindly submit to anything that is told to us, but rather to always submit in godly fear. And if what you are commanded is ungodly, then it is your duty, out of service and love for the one commanding you, to disobey and let him know his limits. Wives, you are commanded to obey your husbands in all things with humble submission before God. And yet, if your husband was to ask you to do something immoral, whether it would be to steal, to kill, or even something sexual, it would be your godly duty to refuse and set the bounds so that he would not exceed his bounds and you would take him into further sin by allowing his foolish thoughts to go forward. In the same way, we as the citizens have a duty as the subjects of the magistrate to limit the magistrate's sin. Not to kill the magistrate because we disagree with him, but to say, thus far your rights go, but no further. And that's what Daniel did. That is the example given to us. That's what Peter and John do when they are before the magistrate. They say, we must honor God rather than you. And we will not allow this sin upon your head that the preaching of the gospel will cease because we foolishly obeyed you rather than God. And this is the position in which we find ourselves. The obedience that we are to give is an obedience that must never, ever contradict our calling as believers. You can never give the excuse, it was ordered to me that I do these things. 
It was custom. It was the law of the land. Because remember, while you are to be polite as a pilgrim or as a guest in the kingdom of another, your citizenship and your allegiance is to God in heaven above. And you are never allowed to violate the law of God in seeking to be polite to the magistrate whom you are under in this world. Keep in mind also why such commands would have been written in Scripture, whether by Paul or Peter. Keep in mind the charge under which Jesus was crucified. On the cross, Pilate nailed up the following, King of the Jews. Jesus Christ died as a rebel against Rome. You see there a gross misuse of civil power. But now the church has begun under this very great burden, under the cloud of these are rebels, these are treasonous people. Even when Tacitus, the Roman historian, writes the history of Rome, he, uh, he alludes to the Christian church, he speaks of it, and says these are the ones who follow the one who was crucified as king of the Jews showing that the Christians would have always been viewed as rebels and not trustworthy. And so when the apostles write to the Christian churches, they warn them, you are to show yourselves as model citizens who do not bring about any dishonor on the church. The apostle Peter says, while it is certainly honorable to be found worthy of being persecuted for the sake of Christ, there is absolutely no honor if you are punished because you're a thief or a murderer. And so it is in that light that we are to see this passage. We are to submit to an authority that God has given to this world, whereby he seeks to suppress evil and to have some semblance of justice, so that you will not have a war of all against all. That is why the magistrate exists. But that is also its limited power. The magistrate's power is not infinite. It is not free to command and bind your conscience. It is not free to tell you to violate the law of God. It is simply there to preserve general equity in order to allow the innocent to go on living and to punish the wicked. Now, in this, we must also see another very significant element as we have studied the law of God. Keep in mind that the church of Jesus Christ is the instrument that God uses for the propagation of the gospel of grace. We do not preach law to the world. We preach grace to the world. The world already has law. Its conscience is already condemned. What it needs is the relief for that. And so the job of the church is to use the law only insofar as is necessary to remind people of their sin. But the function of the church is to preach the gospel of grace. And the church of Jesus Christ does not execute vengeance upon sinners, but rather offers to them comfort and peace to those who repent and believe in Jesus Christ. In contrast to that, what is the state? What is the role of the magistrate? It is a law work. The magistrate is not a means of grace. The magistrate is not here to make people better. It is not here to bring about the salvation of sinners. Its job is to be a law work and to punish sinners in order to restrict the influence and power of evil. 
And so when the Christian church forgets this and seeks to ally itself with the state in order to propagate the gospel, it has confused the categories of law and gospel and lost the gospel. It is unable to use the power of the sword to bring about the work of grace because the work of grace is brought about by the work of the Spirit in the hearts of sinners. So the honor that we give to the magistrate is not to invite him into the church, and it is not to give the church to his care. The honor and submission we give to the magistrate is to recognize he is the one who has been given the responsibility of seeing that the innocent are not persecuted by the wicked, and that those who commit murder are punished, those who steal have to restore that which they have stolen, and to preserve general order. So when, in the past, even the reformers misunderstood this, we wrote into our confessions that the magistrate has the duty to preserve purity of the church. But if you look at our confession, that was a confession article 36, that has since been revised, where we now understand better. No, the magistrate is a law work and has no role in the propagation of the gospel of grace, other than, as a secondary thing, just preserving general order so that the gospel can be preached. Another item that must be remembered. Many of us have been raised and taught with this idea that you obey government, that this is right and proper and it is the duty of Christians. And to even speak to this level is seditious. But I ask you to consider, every one of you here is here voluntarily this morning. You are here because you believe of all the different people who claim that they have the gospel, or of all those who claim that they have the true God, you have come here believing that this is where the one true God is rightly preached and worshipped. And yet, even with that, and knowing that it is God who has given us the church, that the minister is ordained by the will of God through the hands of men, and the elders, though elected, are still serving in an office given by God. Not one of you blindly turns your wills over to the consistory so that everything we say you automatically do. Not one of you would tolerate the consistory coming in and micromanaging your life because you recognize rightly the limits of the consistory to oversee you, but not to tyrannically rule you, not to micromanage your life, but to give you the encouragement and guidance necessary for godly living and to call you to repentance when there is obvious sin. And yet, Christians often will say, whatever the magistrate commands, we should obey. Well, how can that be when the church of Jesus Christ has been given true authority and rule in the world, and we recognize its limits, that the magistrate we allow to run rampant over so many things? What we must do then, is, as we approach this text, is to understand it is, the magistrate, is a minister of God as an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. It is not to be the one that micromanages your life and binds your conscience and forces you to violate the law of God. And therefore, we must, as believers, honor the magistrate, but rightly recognize its limits as well and not make others submit and not submit ourselves to those things which are questionable or wrong. Now, why would we do this? This is a Christian church. We're here to preach the gospel. How does this obedience 
help us with the gospel? How does this understanding make us to know that we are to worship God in these things? Consider this. As we already said at the beginning, Romans 13 is in the final section of Romans, in that section that we label the gratitude that we owe to God as believers. Following Romans 13 regarding the magistrate will not make you right with God. Because no obedience to the law will make you right with God. This is actually a response to the reality that you already belong to God, that God is your king, that you are serving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So this is always in light of the understanding that God reigns supreme and the magistrate is obeyed simply because God has placed them in a position of power. God first the magistrate second. We obey because we no longer belong to this world, so we are not tied into the politics of this world. And that's an important point to remember. Why is it that we are told simply just do what the magistrate says, understanding its role? Because your primary concern is with the kingdom where your citizenship lies. Your primary concern is that the gospel be preached faithfully. Your concern is that you continue to grow in your sanctification. Your concern is that you are a faithful husband or wife or a parent or a child, a friend or an employee, whatever it might be. Your concern is those things which God has given you in your station. And so, to some degree, this honoring of the magistrate and leaving him alone to do his job is actually lowering the magistrate a few notches in most people's minds. Saying, you know, it's got its job to do. Just like the gardener has his job, the farmer has his job, the doctor has his job, the magistrate has his job. He's not your ruler or king. He is simply the one who is given in order to suppress evil, to ensure that there is order. So in that light, let us then turn back to Romans 13. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority, there is no station given except from God. And those which exist are established by God. So is the magistrate then contrary to the church? Well, no. And this is something that the Anabaptists didn't recognize. They thought that since we serve the king of kings, therefore all others must bow to us. And so they confused the role of the church and they essentially made the church into the state. And that was one of the problems in the Reformation, and you see a lot of that being objected to by the magisterial reformers. They say, this is ridiculous. God has given a role and function to civil magistrates, and the church does not replace it. The church does not bear the sword. And so recognize that the civil magistrate has a function. And as a consequence of this, verse 2, whoever resists the authority has opposed the ordinance, the will of God. And they who have opposed this will of God receive condemnation upon themselves. God has given roles and functions to everyone, and we must seek to understand those functions. Verse 3, For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it, the authorities, uh, is a minister of God to you, for good. But if you do what is evil, 
Be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Now, go back and look at Romans 12, verse 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And now you see here in verse 4, God has ordained a method of revenge in this world, and that is the civil magistrate. Is a civil magistrate faultless? No. Does it execute perfect justice? No. But you are not allowed to go out and execute justice when God has put other authorities in the world. And so there you see the connection and why this passage occurs here. It is in light of the fact that we are told not to take revenge, but for this reason. Not because evildoers are okay and the damage they cause is to simply be accepted, but because there is another mechanism that God has put in place in order to check the extent of evil. Wherefore it is necessary, because of this power, that we be in subjection. And this subjection is not simply because we fear the wrath of those in authority and with the sword, but for conscience' sake. So this submission to the magistrate, then, is to be done because of the fact we recognize God as the true sovereign and because we understand he is now our father. And so he says, for your conscience sake, submit. For because of this, in light of the fact that I have told you to be in subjection, taxing is a permissible option. For because of this, you pay taxes because it is necessary to sustain the rulers as servants of God, devoting themselves to this function of suppressing evil. As a consequence, render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So we are told, recognize stations, authority, positions. But then verse 8 comes in. Before you absolutize this and say, well, there you go. Christians must pay whatever tax they're told to pay. They must do whatever they're told by the magistrate. Verse 8 comes in and says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. How then are we to obey, honor, and respect? Only where love is the principle that guides our actions. Therefore, do you pay taxes where Paul says, yeah, you pay taxes where there's a civil magistrate. But you do this with the understanding that love of neighbor cannot be violated by this principle. What does that mean? This is where I said it's going to be complex and you're going to have to think about all this stuff and it is necessary to interact with this text. Can a tax code be written which is unjust? We are commanded to take care of the, in, the widow and the fatherless and the orphan. Can a tax law and principle and can laws of the magistrate be such that they are violating these principles? And can you as a Christian then blindly support these laws or do you have an obligation to say, no, in light of the fact that I'm to love my neighbor, I cannot allow you to go on doing this without warning you of the severe consequences that await you, that you are oppressing the poor and harming those who are weak. See, the Christian is bound to speak up, just as we have a duty towards one another to warn each other when we are sinning. That duty does not end when we are dealing with the magistrate. Humble submission does not mean quiet submission. 
It does not mean simply sitting back and letting things be. It does mean not seeking your own revenge as a means of making everything right. Because keep in mind, you belong to God. God says that I will take revenge. You also recognize that since your treasure is in heaven, you don't invest yourself overly much into this present age. You know this present age is evil. You know you're going to suffer. This is the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus tells you, if I suffered, you're going to suffer. So it's not that we're simply trying to avoid suffering. But the duty to be compassionate and loving to others is not taken away simply because you are called upon to suffer. You are called upon to never cause others to suffer. You are called upon to never oppress the weak. And therefore, that duty remains with you even when you're dealing with those more powerful, such as the magistrate. So in all this, the question comes up. What is it that is due to others? Paul says, owe nothing except to love one another. Well, what about the magistrate? It says, render to them what is due. Well, what is that? This is what's called begging the question if you're looking at logic. Begging the question is something that you deal with when Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God. What is the question that is being begged? What does belong to Caesar? And what does belong to God? And until you've answered that question, there is no way to obey that command. So, am I going to answer that question for you? I cannot answer that question absolutely for you, because this will be by your conscience. In light of the confessions and our catechisms, in light of the writings of those who have gone before, and particularly Calvin's chapter on the magistrate, absolutely essential that you read, digest, and understand these things. And then you have to ask yourself, what then am I called to do? In the writings of Calvin, he makes it very clear. We are called to obey the magistrate. And yet the last two sections of that chapter, he also speaks of when rebellion is permissible, and in fact, when rebellion is the necessary duty of the Christian. That's pretty severe. And keep in mind, Calvin was what we call the magisterial reformer. He's the one who acknowledged the right of the state and, in fact, called upon the state to help push the Reformation forward. So this is not some new radical thought. This is something you must struggle with. And as we've said numerous times here, true Christianity, reformed Christianity, is the religion of the thinking man. If you want a simple checklist, you're not going to get it here. You are to have a living, breathing relationship with the true God. And you're going to be interacting with him through his word. And you're going to have to learn and understand. And your conscience is to be guided in how you are to act. Simplistic explanations just won't do. But then we come back to the command. Be in subjection to the governing authorities. Don't ignore that. In light of all that has been said here, I'm not telling you to rebel. That is not appropriate because then you are going against the command of God. But be in subjection with a clear conscience, owing no one anything but love, never paying back evil for evil to anyone, giving preference and honor to others. Your life will be reconciling these things through the Spirit's guidance as you live in this world in a God-honoring manner in the kingdom in which you are a pilgrim until the day you are finally translated to glory. 
Let me give you words of encouragement on this. The truth remains that you belong to God. And those who belong to God will be given the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. And so it will not be impossible to find out what we are to do. And God will not leave us floundering with multiple good or bad choices. God will always provide for us true knowledge and a right way to do things. And therefore, we must seek and understand these things in order that we should show forth true gratitude to God without ever compromising our belonging, first and foremost, to the King of Kings who has purchased us by his blood. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are very humbled in a day like this because we are forced to grapple with a lot of difficult issues in a fallen world. If the world was perfect, if all men were good, this would be no issue whatsoever. But we live in a fallen world and we are called to be holy. We are told to submit to those in authority and we are told never to be unrighteous or violate your law. We ask, O Lord, that you will have mercy upon us and make us to understand these things that you will humble us and correct us where we are wrong, that you will make us to believe and understand that you are, in fact, the true king, and that we are to await the day in which you shall bring your kingdom with power and glory, and that you will redeem your people finally, taking away from us all the burdens of sin and this curse of this world. We thank you, O Lord, for the hope that is still ours, even in this time. Amen. Let us then stand and sing Psalm 2, Why Do Heathen Nations Rage? Remembering and acknowledging the condition of this world and the reality of the rule of Christ. Let us stand and sing. Amen.